Hello everyone and welcome to the Wilds Cast. Today's episode is a rebroadcast of a Lunch and Learn on Facebook Live. It's the first in a special two-part series about the Jewish imperative to fix the world. Social justice began when God told Adam to make the world a better place. In light of recent events, we dedicate this class to the terrible tragedy surrounding the death of George Floyd. So, without further ado, here's Rabbi Wilds. All right, so what I want to do with you guys, because of what's happening in the world, we thought it would be a good idea to dedicate our Lunch and Learns to the situation, to the uh, terrible and tragic um, killing of George Floyd and the aftermath, um, um, the protests. Thankfully, most of them are peaceful, and uh, the unpeaceful protests, the ones that turns into riots, um, and looting obviously is quite an embarrassment and really a stain on the memory of George Floyd. Um, I want to just say that at the outset. Uh, it is one of the most important things as far as Judaism is concerned. I want to move this down a little. Hang on one second, guys. To uh, be active and to try to fix problems and issues in the world. Um, welcome, Mark. Pleasure to have you, Mark. Uh, we don't just stand by idly while things happen. In fact, one of the most important biblical mandates ever given to mankind was from God to Adam when he told him, Vikiv Shuha, which means to conquer and to harness the forces of nature and make the world a better place. And when, the, when something goes wrong, like it did um, just a couple of weeks ago with George Floyd, um, we have to make sure that we do something, we react, and we act, react appropriately. Um, I remember a couple of years back when Nepal was hit by one of the worst and devastating earthquakes in history. Israel sent this extraordinary IDF relief team to help save people that were trapped in the rubble and to set up a field hospital for the many wounded. I want to again just recognize the presence of Avi Mori, my father, my teacher, who is here. Uh, I'm in his apartment. We came to hang out a little today. Um, and the reason there's so much light is because he's got this huge window with all the sun coming in, which is pretty nice. Um, so thanks, Dad. So when Israel sent the IDF relief team to help save people trapped under the rubble and to set up a field hospital, 60-bed field Israeli hospital was based in Nepal's capital, Kathmandu, love that place. And over the 10 days of its operation, there were 150, there was 150 person medical team that Israel sent out. They treated hundreds of earthquake victims and carried out 85 surgeries. They were operating rooms, imaging facilities, advanced labs, intensive care section, it even had a synagogue and a kosher kitchen. Now, when the medical team came back to Israel, none other than the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, was there at the airport to greet the medical care workers. And by the way, I think this is a good opportunity to again give a shout out. We don't have to wait till 7 p.m., but we could always express our hakaratatov, our extraordinary gratitude for the medical workers in New York City and throughout this country who are working tirelessly, continuing to work tirelessly, to help patients with COVID-19. And what um, 
the Prime Minister said to the, to the team of medical experts, and I quote, he said, you helped 1,600 wounded people, you brought new life with at least eight births, you have shown the true face of Israel, a country that values life. And this is not an isolated event. Israel is consistently one of the first countries to respond to disasters all over the world. The IDF has sent medical and relief teams to the following countries, listen to this, that have been hit by earthquakes all corners of the globe. Mexico in 1985, Armenia 1988, Turkey 1991, El Salvador, India, and Peru, all three of those countries in 2001, Indonesia in 2006. Now, these are countries that Israel doesn't necessarily have diplomatic relations with, um, or they're not countries that Israel gets financial aid from. They're very poor countries, many of them. But Israel does it because it believes that that's what a Jew is supposed to do when someone else is in trouble. In fact, in 1994, during the Rwandan refugee crisis, Israel initiated what was called Operation Interns for Hope. And they established a field hospital in neighboring Zaire to bring medical aid to refugees. Israel sent supplies to Sri Lanka in response to the devastating flood of 2003 and was amongst the first three countries in the world to provide aid to victims of the 2004 tsunami that ravaged parts of Southeast Asia. If you remember also in 2010, when Haiti was hit with a 7.0 level earthquake, Israel sent a team of 250 Israeli doctors, nurses, and rescue workers to save lives. In fact, the newspapers were reporting on how um, a mother of the first Haitian child that the Israeli team delivered named her son Israel. Isn't that beautiful? Because of the extraordinary care that she was given by the Israeli team. And when my friend, Rabbi, Rabbi Levine, the rabbi of the Jewish Center, he told me, he told me this years ago that, that um, a religious man from Israel, whose name was Mayer, comes every year to New York City to come to the Jewish Center to speak about a very worthy cause in Israel that he would be raising money for. And he came to see him, he came to see Rabbi Levine a couple of years ago, and he told Rabbi Levine that he rented a car when he came from Israel to get around while he was here. And one day he made a mistake. He was driving some, down some highway in New Jersey, and he ran out of gas. He forgot to fill the tank fully with gas. And he gets out of the car, he's on the side of the road, he's a little frazzled, you know, an Israeli guy doesn't know what's going on here so much. And he sees this Jeep driving past him. The Jeep stops and goes into reverse, and the driver had obviously spotted him and pulled over to see what was going on. A black man gets out of the Jeep, asks the Israeli what was happening. Mayor is his name. And he starts to tell him, he starts to tell him that he's a visitor from Israel and, and he, he had run out of gas. The driver of the Jeep starts getting all teary-eyed. He steps forward and he gives Mayor a big hug. This is before COVID-19. Mayor is a little taken back. He says, well, why are you hugging me? He says, you don't understand, I'm from Haiti. My entire neighborhood was devastated in the earthquake. Much of my family was killed. We thought the world was coming to an end. There was no one there to help. 
nobody cared. And then Israel came. They cared. And I've never met anyone since from Israel. And when I saw you, you look Jewish, as an Orthodox man, I pulled over because I wanted to thank you. It's an unbelievable story. Such a tiny country, Israel goes out of its way to share its considerable know-how with other nations. I have a friend, my friend David Barr, which I went to Yeshiva University with him. His wife, Sivan, started this solar panel system where Israel manufactures and produces solar panels and sends them to African countries that don't have uh, electricity. They're constantly creating and innovating, making an impact way beyond its numbers and sharing this with the rest of the world. Israel was the first to develop the first ingestible video camera. It's so tiny that it fits within a pill and it's used to view the small, the, the small intestine from inside to detect possible disease or illness. And it's all over the world. Israel produced that. Israeli scientists developed the first fully computerized, no radiation diagnostic technology to detect breast cancer. Israel leads the world in the number of scientists and technicians in the workplace per capita. They developed the cell phone and most of the Windows operating systems. So the next time you want to throw your cell phone out because you're so addicted to it and you're sick of it, you can, you can blame Israel. The Pentium MMX chip technology was designed in Israel as well as the Pentium microprocessor that still exists in most of our computers. Voicemail technology, if you remember back when, was from Israel as well as the technology of AOL Instant Messenger. And it's no wonder, therefore, why so many Nobel Prize winners are Jewish. We constitute less than one-fifth of one percent of the human race, and yet Jews have won 20% of the Nobel Prizes in Chemistry, 26% of the Nobel Prizes in Physics, 27% of the Nobel Prizes in Medicine, and 41% in the area of Economics. You know, they say that three out of four people who most influenced 20th century thought were Jewish. And the fourth guy was wrong. <laughs> Albert Einstein, Karl Marx, Sigmund Freud, and Charles Darwin, the brilliant um, originator of uh, modern-day evolution theory, which is uh, accepted in certain scientific circles and not in others, different parts of the theory. Just making a little joke, but three out of the four to be Jewish. It seems as though there's something in our DNA that propels us to want to fix the world and make this planet a better place. You know, looking around in the world, the biggest law firms, the most prominent universities, best hospitals, all have disproportionate numbers of Jewish partners, profession, professors, and physicians. And, very proud to say, and this is very relevant to what's going on today, most human rights and civil rights movements have been led by Jews. You see the famous pictures of Martin Luther King marching in the 1960s in Selma, Alabama. Who's he standing next to? The late and great Abraham Heschel, right? One of the great philosophers and theologians of our time was arm in arm with Martin Luther King. And I interviewed years ago on Martin Luther King Day, I had the honor of interviewing the older brother of one of the three Jewish men who was killed in the 1960s during the civil, um, during the civil uh, rights movement. In, in, uh, it was a famous story of three Jewish uh, boys. They were, they were not teenagers, but in their 20s, who really put their lives on the line 
um, to fight on behalf of the African-American community for civil rights. The question is, is this some sort of coincidence? Is, is this something Jews happen to do? Do we just happen to be more in the forefront of movements aimed at making the world a better place? Or are we just more industrious, more ambitious, that we've somehow discovered so many cures for disease, we're davening and praying that Israel comes up with uh, a vaccine for COVID-19, right? Or is this sort of God's plan? Is God sort of, you know, we're just sort of puppets and God's behind the scenes making all these Jews into these brilliant innovators, that we're somehow destined to become a light amongst the nations, the phrase taken from the Bible, from the Torah, we're gonna to study that, that somehow through our actions we were charged to make a difference. So what does the Torah say about this? Now, there's no technical mitzvah per se to fix the world. It's not one of the Ten Commandments. It's not even technically listed as one of the 613. Bettering the world, however, is a religious imperative expressed throughout written and oral Torah, so much so that I would call it a meta-issue in Judaism. Now, I'm going to come back to this before because there are certain Jewish groups that make fixing the world all of Judaism. And I want to take issue with that also. It's a very important, and I would call it a meta-issue of Judaism, but it's not the end-all and be-all of what it means to be Jewish. We still believe in keeping kosher, in observing Shabbat, in praying every day, things that may not necessarily make the world, if you will, a better place, even though I think they do as well. But it's not something that should replace or dwarf other aspects of Judaism, which as I say, unfortunately happened in some parts of the community. But there's a divine mission that the Torah lays out for us to follow. Take a look at your source sheet for the, for the first uh, source I wanna share with you. And this is where the concept of being a light amongst the nations comes from. It's a pasuk from Isaiah, uh, a verse from the book of Isaiah. Uh, chapter 42, verse six, where it says, I am the Lord, I have called you with righteousness. I will strengthen your hand, I will protect you, and I formed you and I made you as a covenant to the people for a light to the nations. Now, a light to the nations is found actually in three separate verses from, uh, from the book of Isaiah. Take a look at the other two in 49.6 and also in 63. And he said, it is not enough that you be a servant for me only to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the ruins of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations so that my salvation may extend to the ends of the earth. By the way, right there you see that you're supposed to be a light amongst the nations so that God's salvation can be known throughout the world. Isaiah 63, nations shall go by your light and kings by the brilliance of your shine. The Radak, one of the great biblical commentators on the prophets, writes that the light, when it says here on the first verse in 42.6, that... I am the Lord, I have called you with righteousness, I will strengthen your hand, I will protect you, I formed you, and I made you as a covenant for a light to the nations. The light is the Torah, says the Radak, which will emanate from Zion to the nations, and through the Jewish people, peace will be achieved, as well as justice, because through the Jewish people, how, what, how will the, the, race, the rest of the nations of the world benefit? They will get the seven Noachide laws, which teach how to deal justly with our fellow human being. Those of you unfamiliar, we, as Jews, believe that there are seven Noachide laws, the Shiva Mitzvah B'nai Noach, seven laws of, of ethics and morality, not to murder, not to steal, 
uh, not to do, uh, not to rip a limb off a living animal, the mitzvah to set up a court system, um, the prohibition of blaspheming God's name, the mitzvah to believe in God, seven basic laws of ethics and morality that we are supposed to bring to the rest of civilization. And that's how we're going to be a light amongst the nations, says the Radak. Now, the Radak also writes that other peoples and other nations, including their leaders and kings and government officials, will say, let us go up to Mount Zion, to the temple and to learn God's ways. What's ultimately supposed to happen is that other people are attracted to the value system of Judaism because the Jewish people have spread so much justice and morality throughout the world. And therefore, according to the classic commentators, these verses teach that due to God's restoration of the Jewish people to Israel, that we're returned to Israel, because a lot of this is happening in Israel, and other prophecies coming true, the nations of the world will look to the Jewish people for truth, for moral guidance, and that ultimately through the Torah, the Jewish people will illuminate the world. That is the classic interpretation of the verses that speak about the Jews as a light amongst the nations. But there's another phrase, that's not as well known. Follow with me, source number two. You see where we have it here? It says a kingdom of priests. Very famous pasuk. I actually studied this with you guys a couple of weeks ago before Shavuos. God says, if you listen well to me and you observe my covenant, you shall be to me the most beloved treasures of all people. For mine is the entire world. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the children of Israel. First thing we see, by the way, this is really important. This is the biblical source for us being a chosen people. We had a whole discussion of it. I'm not going to get into it now. But the first thing you see from the verses is that our chosen status as a kingdom of priests is not unconditional. It is predicated on the Jewish people carrying out the covenant, which is generally understood as the mitzvah. You keep my mitzvah, God says, and you will be my special people to bring my message of universal, ethical monotheism to the rest of humanity. We have a deal. We have a covenant. That's why it's so important when we call ourselves a chosen people that we know what that means. It means we're chosen to spread the message of Judaism throughout the world. The question is, how is that supposed to be carried out? Are we supposed to proactively try to influence other people to follow the seven Noachide laws? By the way, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the late and great Lubavitcher Rebbe, actively encouraged Jews to exert their influence to persuade people, non-Jewish people, our non-Jewish friends and neighbors, to follow the Noachide code. That's one approach. Or simply by virtue of living by the laws of the Torah and making a Kiddush Hashem, a sanctification of God's name, we become an, a model to others, to other peoples and nations to live an ethical lifestyle. We are the people of the book, the Jewish people, and therefore we are seen as God's ambassadors in the world. And the way we behave reflects on God. We can give God a good name by making what's called a Kiddush Hashem, and God forbid we can give God just the opposite, a bad name, by God forbid making what's called a Chil Hashem, a desecration. So when we act ethically at work, when we're careful not to speak ill of our fellow human being, the Talmud tells us 
that by resisting Potiphar's advances, Joseph, the, the great biblical personality, made a Kiddush Hashem. Right? Joseph was put in charge of the household of Potiphar. Potiphar's wife had a little too much time on her hands. She starts making advances at Joseph. He was supposed to be a very handsome man. But Joseph resisted. Joseph could have given in. She was supposed to have been a very beautiful woman and she was relentless. She kept making sexual advances. It's interesting, it's the first uh, instance of sexual harassment in the workplace that's mentioned in the Bible. And it involved a woman sexually harassing a man. And Joseph resisted and he never caved in. And it was supposed to be an, an act of extraordinary self-restraint. And he made, in a sense, a Kiddush Hashem. There's a story in the Yerushalmi it's a very, very important uh, part of our rabbinic literature. It was a, a Babylonian Talmud and a is Israel Talmud. This is the Israel Talmud, where Rav Shimon ben Shetach, this some Talmudic sage, buys a donkey from an Arab. And when his servants buy the donkey, and when they bring the donkey home, they discover a valuable jewel in the harness of the donkey. Rav Shimon immediately ordered them to return the jewel, and he told his disciples, Dad, I know you'll appreciate this. He said, I would prefer a Gentile to say, blessed be the God of the Jews than all the money in the world. Because they found this precious jewel in the harness of a donkey that they had just bought from Arabs. And the way we behave is supposed to inspire people in terms of their own ethical conduct. When people see this ethical behavior is due to our observance of the Torah, they are then inspired to follow in God's ways. I want to tell you a story, and the reason I'm sharing this story is because it's, my dad is here right now, and he told me the story. I put it in my book. If you haven't read my book, it's called Beyond the Instant. I put the story um, years ago, and the first time I actually heard the story was at my son Yosef's bar mitzvah, when my father got up to speak. And he shared the story about his father. So years ago, someone very prominent called my dad, who was practicing, as he continues for many, many years to practice as an immigration attorney. He called my father to get his grandchildren sworn in as citizens while they were in the United States for Passover. He wanted to save the cost and the huge hassle of bringing them in on another occasion. So my father called a member of his association in Ohio, I got all the facts here, where the swearing in was supposed to take place. My dad gets papers and visas, immigration legal status for people. Now my dad's colleague in Ohio said, the mayor, the congressman, the senator are all trying to get it done. Don't waste your time, it can't happen. There's not enough of a window of time here. So my father tried one more thing. He decided to call the INS, the Immigration Naturalization Service. It's now called Homeland Security. Homeland, what is it? Homeland, Homeland Security. It used to be called the INS. My dad calls uh, the INS, and he was put in touch with this random guy, Inspector Kowalczyk. Kowalczyk uh, answers the phone and says to my dad what the other people said in Ohio, there's nothing that could be done. And I'm the deportation officer, however. I don't handle citizenship, and you're looking for citizenship. Um, but I don't think it can be done. 
And before he hung up the phone, my dad said to him, you know, I'm from a small town in Pennsylvania called Oliphant, and I remember a Kowalczyk from Oliphant. And um, I think they had a store in Oliphant. And Kowalczyk interrupts. He says, yeah, a furniture store. How do you know? He asks my father. He says, because I grew up in Oliphant, Pennsylvania. My father also had a store in Oliphant. That, that was my Zadie. Kowalczyk says, let me see what I can do to see if I could be of any help. And he hangs up the phone. A few days later, Kowalczyk calls my dad back. And he says to my father, who's Harry Wilds? My father gets all choked up. Harry Wilds, he says, it's my father. Kowalczyk says, my mother is in her 90s. And I asked her if she ever heard of the name Wilds. And right away she said, Harry Wilds, of course, I know Harry Wilds. He's the honest Jew. And then Kowalczyk proceeded to tell my father the following story that he had never heard. And I heard for the first time at my son Yosef's bar mitzvah. Kowalczyk said, your grandfather, excuse me, your father, my grandfather, your grandfather came as a peddler. I'm sorry, this is me speaking. Your father came as a peddler to my mother's house, which was quite a distance from Oliphant. My, my Zaidi, my father's father, would sometimes take some of the merchandise from the store and peddle it, you know, move it around town a little. Anyway, when your father came to my mother's house and she bought a house dress from him and gave your father a $20 bill, but your father gave her change as though she had only given him $10, not 20. And it was only when he got home, back to his house in Oliphant, that he realized he had given her the wrong change. Around midnight that night, your father traveled all the way back to my mother's home, Kowalczyk says, knocked at the door, woke up my mother, and gave her the $10. And she never forgot that, Kowalczyk said to my father. Look, there's not much I can do about this case, but the least I can do for Harry Wilde's son is to try. And sure enough, Kowalczyk got it done. He himself swore in the grandchildren as citizens. That, my friends, is a Kiddush Hashem. That's the sanctification of God's name. Nobody forgets when people do the right thing. Nobody forgets when someone could have gotten away with taking some money and gives it back anyway. Nobody forgets this. I'll tell you another story, another Kiddush Hashem. This is very meaningful for me, by the way, to be able to be in my dad's apartment and sharing the story in my father's presence. L'zecha nishmas, um, his father, uh, whose name was Avraham Tzvi. And I'll tell you one other great story. And this is all about how we repair the world. We don't just repair the world by getting on a soapbox and yelling and screaming. We repair the world by living in a certain way. Because when you live in a certain way, and I know this is apparent, you can preach all you want. You can tell people what you think is the right way and the internet and social media is filled with everybody yelling at each other and preaching 
what is the right way to live life. You know the best way of teaching it? Action. That's why in Judaism it's called halacha. Halacha from the word halach, the way you walk. Because it's not about the way you talk, it's about the way you walk. It's about the way you live your life. You live in the right way, people are impressed. You live in a substandard way, people get turned off. So here's another story. There was a woman that was started to come to MJE, and I could see she was serious about learning more about her Judaism. She had very little background. She never went to uh, any Jewish schools growing up, but she was very smart. She was a physician, and she was quite committed to learning more. And I asked her, what triggered off your interest in learning more about your Judaism? And she said it was something that happened in medical school. She was in her second or third year medical school where they come out with the cadavers. You know, the bodies, uh, the corpses, so that they could learn human anatomy. And she noticed how cavalier most of the students, other students were around their cadavers. People were doing whatever they're doing when the very beginning, people were respectful. And then after a while of hanging out with your cadaver, people just kind of loosened up and were just speaking regular idle chatter and making jokes. Except there was this one boy in the class, one medical student with a kippah. And she noticed how serious he remained in the presence of that cadaver. How he never made jokes, how he never spoke um, just little small things. He, he actually was quiet in the presence of the cadaver unless he needed to speak in regard to what he was studying from the cadaver in his human anatomy class. And when she saw his sensitivity, she was attracted to that. And she started to speak to him and realized that he was behaving that way in the presence of the cadaver due to his religious background. And it inspired her to learn more about the way Judaism pertains to the dead. The great respect we give, what's called in Hebrew chesed shel emes, the, the kindness of truth that we um, apply to someone. Rabbi Ezra, who's listening, always loves to teach. He teaches a brilliant class every year about how to deal with death and bereavement. But the Jewish approach, which, which ascribes such dignity and respect, was something that impressed her. And it led her to want to learn more and more about what's called Kavad HaMais, the honor that we give to the deceased, even though the soul is not there anymore, but it was the body that housed the soul. And that turned her on to Judaism. You know what turns Jews and non-Jews on to anything? When you live a certain kind of life, and you don't draw extra attention to yourself, you just live that life. That's what it means, ki mitzion Torah. Out of Zion does the Torah go. That the state and the people of Israel are seen in a certain way by the rest of the world, and people are impressed. People are impressed how a tiny country surrounded by enemies is such an innovator in technology and in medical technology, and is sharing that medical technology with poor African countries, and is sending medical teams out after an earthquake and getting nothing in return. Israel doesn't really get a lot of coverage for this kind of stuff. But they do because it's the right thing. My dear friend, Dr. Mark Arkovitz, who dedicated MG's first Sefer Torah, he once got out of a long surgery on a Palestinian boy. And there was a picture that someone took of the Palestinian boy's father hugging Mark. 
because he saved his life. And he posted and he said, I've done this so many times. How come the networks don't pick up this? It's just important for us. Now, why does Mark do it? He doesn't do it for the PR. Mark is like the antithesis of PR. He's just a good doctor and cares about healing people, irrespective of who they are. That's what inspires people. That inspires me. Now, let's just continue a little more. Having ourselves really as ambassadors in Israel sending relief teams, discovering cures to disease, having the world see all of this as our divine mission. As a mamlechet koanim v'goy kadosh, as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But it's also there to teach the world about a one God. And here the impact of the Jewish faith on the world religions also should be mentioned. It's also a reflection of our mission to be a mamlechet koanim, a kingdom of priests. If you take a look at the Rambam, Great Maimonides wrote, and um, if you take a look, Rabbi Abraham ben Harambam, this is actually the uh, son of the Rambam, he said, the priest of any congregation is its leader, its most honored individual, and the congregation's role model, through whom they learn to follow in the right path. In calling on Israel to be a kingdom of priests, is that it was as if God said to them, become leaders of the world through keeping my Torah, so that your relation to, to humanity becomes that of a priest to his congregation. What is the goal and the job of a Kohen, of a priest in the Jewish community? They were the teachers, they were the leaders. We are supposed to be the teachers and the leaders of the world in ethics, in morality, in values, so that the world follows in your path, imitates your deeds and walks in your ways. Now I can't tell you, why didn't God just zap everybody to be good? Because he didn't want robots. He didn't want angels. He wanted people with free will. But he gives models for free will. He gives bad role models for free will, and he gives good role models for free will. We all have a choice. What model do we want to be? The Sfarno says also that it is our job, where I underlined it on the very last line on the handout, to teach the entire human race to call on the name of God and to serve him with one accord. Um, Maimonides writes this. If you look at three sources down, the Rambam says that Christianity and Islam, both religions grew out of Judaism, and they have spread many of the basic concepts of ethical monotheism to the world. Look what the Rambam wrote. And these matters, look, you see the third um, paragraph down, where it says Rambam? Let's see right here. Take a look. This is a really beautiful quote right over here. It says number three, but it's, if you just take a look at the sheet, it's the italics where it says Rambam Maimonides. Okay? All, and all these matters of Jesus of Nazareth and that of the Ishmaelite who arose after him, it's talking about Muhammad, are only to straighten the ways of the King Messiah and to fix the entire world to serve God as one. As it's stated in the prophets, for then I will turn to the people's clear speech to all call in the name of God and serve him unanimously. How will this come about? The entire world has already become filled with the mention of the Messiah, with the words of Torah and with the words of mitzvot, and these matters have spread to the furthermost isles, to many nations of uncircumcised hearts, and they discuss these matters in the mitzvot of the Torah. So what the Rambam is saying is that Christianity and Islam, which both grew out of Judaism, 
has spread the basic concept of ethical monotheism. And even though Christianity and Islam, of course, contain views that are theologically problematic to Judaism, the Rambam here in this Mishnah Torah, where he wrote, he says that God works in mysterious ways, and thanks to both of these religions, quote, the world has become full of the ideas of the Messiah. Right? How many people in the world know what the word Messiah? Okay, maybe they believe came already, and Jesus, and the second coming, right? But the concept of Mashiach was introduced and spread because Judaism spurred the creation of Christianity. The ideas of the Torah and the ideas of the commandments, so that, the, that they have spread to faraway islands and to many dim-hearted nations, and they now discuss these ideas and the commandments of the Torah. So we actually should feel very good that Judaism has actually inspired other faith systems and those faith systems, albeit contradictory to Judaism in certain specifics, are still promoting certain basics, classical, you know, ethical monotheism of Judaism, both Islam and both Christianity. I mean, Islam, interestingly, is extraordinarily strict when it comes to monotheism, right? Christianity has the whole belief in the Trinity and the Holy Ghost and the Spirit and the, right? So that is problematic, uh, theologically, to say the least, as far as Judaism is concerned, but Islam really, but there are other aspects of Christianity that are very positive, moral, ethical values that the world has gotten. And it only happened because there was a Judaism, and that's something we should actually be proud of. Now, what I want to do tomorrow, because we didn't get through a lot, and it's starting to get late, it's 1.11, take a look at the source sheet and the handout. Um, and read the next couple of sources. What I want to study with you is another aspect of fixing the world, tikkun olam, which is all about the charge that God gave to Adam in the Garden of Eden and Rav Soloveitchik's um, explanation, which is really extraordinary and brilliant. And then we're going to learn also a little about these stories in the Torah itself. Why do we have all these stories where God does this from Moses, God does this from Abraham, and for Aaron? We're supposed to learn ethical conduct from God himself. It's a very important concept in religion in general called imuteo dei, which is a Latin term for, for um, imitating the creator, imitating God. And that is something that the whole world is supposed to do, and the Jewish people are supposed to bring that to Hashem. Then what I would want to do is actually spend some time speaking to you about chesed and about kindness. And I want to share with you a very important story about Stephen Carter, about someone who was the subject of great racism um, in his youth and who went on to be an extraordinary leader in the community, not just in the African-American community, but in general, and I want to give it away, because of the way that that racism was ultimately responded to. And we're going to talk about that tomorrow because chesed, promoting kindness, equality, and love for all people created in God's image is one of the things that the Jewish people are supposed to be spreading as our mission of a mamlechet konim begoy kadosh, as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. <clears throat> it's a beautiful story. I'll get to it tomorrow. And I want to leave you with those little teasers as we continue this topic of the Jew fixing the world and hopefully how we can be involved in fixing the current um, crisis and situation of racism in America. Uh, on that note, I want to mention that I'm very, very proud 
Um, Eric Adams um, is going to be joining us uh, tomorrow night together with uh, an important reverend from Connecticut, uh, two important African-American leaders, two black leaders, one who is an assemblyman here in, in Brooklyn, not here in Brooklyn, but in New York City, uh, in the world of politics, and another um, a black leader in the world of faith, uh, a reverend. We're going to be able to hear, uh, we wanted to get two different voices, one political um, and one uh, religious from the African-American community, and that panel will take place tomorrow night at 8.30, right here on Facebook Live. So I will see you guys back uh, right here tomorrow, same time, same place, at 12.30, Lunch and Learn, to continue our, um, our discussion of the Jewish imperative to fix the world, tikkun olam, um, and, um, and then we'll see you tomorrow night for uh, the other um, event, um, the special event, those of you who didn't get the email, MJ was supposed to have their annual, our annual dinner uh, online tomorrow night, but we pushed it off to the 23rd for two weeks from tomorrow night um, so that we could focus on the current situation and be sensitive to what's happening right here and right now. And the dinner will wait another uh, two weeks um, and uh, you'll be getting more information about that. Also, we're starting a Basic Judaism course tonight at 8 o'clock. Um, it'll be a B Live, uh, but also on Facebook Live. Anybody interested, it'll be 8 o'clock tonight. Have a wonderful day. Enjoy the beautiful weather. Stay safe. And don't let the day go by without picking up the phone, calling someone who could use to hear your voice in some words of chizuk, of strength. Have a great day. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Wildscast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do, it helps others discover the show. Music from today's episode comes courtesy of Yosef Wilds. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, please visit our website at jewishexperience.org. Or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us.